Hello, uh, welcome to the Friends You Wish You Had podcast. It's a pleasure to uh, be recording this for you again. I'm joined tonight by uh, my good friend Clark, who is uh, in the center of it all in New York City. In fact, right before we uh, started taping, he was telling me that there are literally choppers overhead. Uh, Like one confirmed chopper will not commit to choppers, plural. Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. But it sounds, you know, from the suburbs here in Florida, that sounds very exciting. You're... uh, you're in New York City. There's chop. There's a chopper overhead. Um, you know the uh, the rabble is coming down your down your block. So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I imagine. Uh, uh, hopefully, it's the Joint Chiefs of Staff up there in full tactical gear, just like just getting the situation under control. You know, because I mean, I'm sure you saw Meghan McCain's tweet, and you know, New York City is in rubble right now. It's it's just a hellscape. That, that was a, a fantastic uh, response. I hope it's true. Like all things on social media, I hope, you know, it's true. I hope what she said was, was bullshit and I hope the response was true. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's fine. We're fine. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, like we don't, we don't need uh, a show of force here. Like uh, we're fine. <laughs> And yeah, I mean, New Yorkers are tough. I mean, New York has seen a lot of shit, you know, just in just in the last 20 years, New York has seen a lot of shit, you know, it has, you know, going back uh, longer than that. But, uh, you know, uh, 9-11, the 2004 RNC, you know, people have been in the streets. Um, you know, terrible things have happened. And, and, you know, New Yorkers, it's good to live on an island off the coast of America. I don't know how long America is going to last, but I'm confident New York will be around you know, longer than that. So I, I mean, I, I'm actually putting like better odds on the, the great Republic of California right now. Um, their, their governor uh, really jumped on the pandemic a lot faster than ours did, despite how much love um, Cuomo's getting in the press. Um, but, uh, but Hey, you know, I think we're going to make it too. Yes, yes. Surviving Cuomo and in, in, uh, in de Blasio is, is one of the challenges for New Yorkers right now, definitely. But, um, but let me back up just a little bit. We have, you know, we're, we're you know, old friends and, and colleagues, and we have been having uh, this long-running text thread, very intense text thread, since about the pandemic started. And it's been one of the things I've been relying on to get through some, uh, some crazy times. And then it seemed to take a, a whole other leap up when uh, the, uh, the nation... Uh, descended into civil unrest, um, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, because it's certainly time for some meaningful change. And, you know, the uh, the 10 day span of uh, 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 Ahmaud Arbery, who was who was murdered in Georgia, um, that crazy Central Park, uh, Central Park uh, altercation between the two Coopers um, was, mm-hmm. you know, just fascinating. Luckily, there was no violence there. And then, of course, the tragic, horrible, disgusting murder of George Floyd, uh, and also I'm leaving out Breonna Taylor. So all of these murders uh, and terrible events happened in a couple of weeks. You know, with George Floyd's murder kind of, you know, capping it off and and sending the you know the country out into the streets, outraged, rightfully outraged. And so yeah, our text thread took on a whole other level of, uh, you know, trying to parse through what was going on in the country. Um, and you know, you asked me a question. Uh, the other night, which I it really, you know, I, I, and the question was, I can't see a path for meaningful police de-escalation now. Can you please prove me wrong? And I think there was like, there was a few ways to interpret that question. Um, and it really, it got me thinking about a lot of different things. 
So I was, I was wondering, can you tell me more about that question? Um, what were you thinking? Where were you coming from when you asked me that question? Yeah, um, I was, I was, that, that definitely was uh, sent in a moment of, of panic and reaction. Um, I, I think I was, that was right when, that was right when um, the Black Hawk was on top of the crowd outside the White, the White House. Uh-huh. You ha- it was like the, the, the tear gassing, the Black Hawk circling overhead. Um, you had uh, hot on the heels of Trump and Esper with that uh, insane conference call to the governors that they need to control the battle s- space. You had... Um, Millie walking around in his fatigues in the perimeter of the White House. I mean, it was just like looking like overt junta shit, right? Definitely. And so, Disconcerting night, day and night, really, you know. Yeah, and so it's like Trump is directly messaging to the governors that they need to step up, you know, brutality, and he's threatening to send in military. Whether or not he can do that, that's also probably a topic for another uh, podcast. But, like, I was already incredibly concerned about like the brutality based on what I knew beforehand. And Trump is just like, of course, this accelerant on the fire. So like I sent that text to you and to a couple other people, cause I was, you know, flipping out a little bit and then that new cycle passes. And then there's the blowback from the, you know, the lame photo op at St. John's uh, Esper and, you know, Millie kind of walking it back in various forms. And then all those op-eds from former brass, you know, calling Trump out for violating the Constitution, for deploying troops on U.S. soil. And so it seemed like the political tide had turned on some of that. And, I, and I'm just kind of reading that as Trump doing what Trump does as, as, as an authoritarian. He's just sort of feeling out the margins of what's possible. Um, totally. So- it, is, it is hard with Trump because on one hand, any, you know, he does these things that are so outlandish and you can already see the reaction, you know, what's going to occur. And then the next day he's always walking it back or lying that it ever happened, you know? Um, so it sort of makes it, you know, it's it just an example of his, his weakness, I think, you know, is that, is that that always happens. So it's, you know, maybe it, it, you know, personally kind of numbs me or puts me to sleep a little bit because I just feel like, you know, now that we've had three years of this, you know, the next day he's going to either be denying it or, you know, changing the story or whatever, or lying about it, you know, whatever he does. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a good way to put it. He, you know, he's just testing the boundaries of what he can get away with. Yeah, and it, it's, it's probably not from even a conscious level, because he doesn't even understand the systems he's exploiting, um, because he's not educated. Yes, yeah, man, he's a guy that goes by his gut, there's no doubt. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeehaw. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it does, I, I, I think of two things. I think of Masha Gessen and I think of Tom Cotton. You know, Masha Gessen, uh, you know, reporter, activist who fled Russia, um, who has a lot to say about, about Putin and Trump and authoritarianism. And she was the first person, like, years ago, when, like, right after the inauguration, that sort of got me thinking about the dissolution of norms, you know? And so even though Trump may walk something back, he's energized Tom Cotton to write that idiotic um, op-ed and, like, you know, you know, that causes a kerfuffle within like the liberal reporter scene, blah, blah, blah. But like what it does is it gives Cotton, like Trump allows Cotton to, to make that next step. And I mean, I think like Cotton and your boy Gates down in Florida are like the future of the GOP. Because where do you go from here except there? You know, like 
where do you go from authoritarianism, like um, uh, lazy authoritarianism to sort of like more committed, educated authoritarianism? So like it, it, put, it, it, it definitely is worrying to me uh, and I'm more concerned about than I have like other things that people have made a, a big fuss about. But like the irony of it all, like I guess it's like I'm glad you asked the question because it forced me to mentally separate the specifics of the DC situation Oh, out from like what's happening nationwide because they really are different dynamics because Trump is essentially the governor of the DC and he can call on the troops there, you know, whenever he likes and the, the, the political ramifications of like, you know, people actually crossing the line of the White House fence are much different than like, you know, um, the uprisings we're seeing in the streets. So I was like, all right, I'm going to put DC in its own little uh, box for a second and then focus on what I think is like the more pervasive and meaningful issue and longstanding, which is you know, um, police brutality. And so it, it also, there was this irony where like on the heels of that photo op, we're seeing this trend of the, mil the military sort of making these calls to police itself. Meanwhile, I know that the police are already acting like the military and they have been for decades. So it's like this strange twisted funhouse mirror where like, yes, the DC situation is important, but like don't get distracted from like what's really happening. Which is, that's, that's what I struggle with, I think, because I, sometimes I really do struggle with, is, this the, is, is what's going on now so different than what's happened before in the United States? Now, you know, you look at a year like, you know, you know, people are like, there's never been anything like this that's happened. And then you look at a year like 1968, where you've got the, you know, the, 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 the incumbent president drops out of the election. Yeah. Um, you know, there's riots all across the country. Martin Luther King is assassinated. Um, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated. You've right. got an FBI and a CIA totally out of control, you know, with no oversight, you know, run by guys who have like created their own, you know, private fiefdoms in the intelligence community. Um, you know, the military, you know, the military's in the streets, you know what I mean? Like the military's called out to like quell some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think you listen to people talking about that at the time and they're just like, I thought America was going to burn down, you know, and, 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 just because it's happening again doesn't reassure me. It can always get worse, you know, from there. But, you know, some of it just makes me feel like these are not, these are not new problems. You know, these are uniquely, you know, uh, or these are American problems and we, we keep having them. I guess they're not unique. Other nations have them too. Um, but then you look at Trump and then it, you know, you're like, fuck no, there's never been a guy like this in our lifetime. And, you know, no. I, like there's certainly a lot of Nixon comparisons. And I, I love people now that talk about Nixon like he was some kind of practical Republican who just got into a little trouble with some shenanigans with Watergate. <laughs> and I mean, like, you know, you know, Nixon gets elected in 68. He's like, I'm going to drop the bomb on Saigon. And, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, so it's, you know, very stressful, difficult time. Students on a college campus in 71 get murdered by the National Guard. You know, I mean, like, we've had these moments of, you know, tremendous unrest in the last, you know, 50, 60 years in this country. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be worried about what's going on, you know, now either. So I, I definitely, I definitely struggle with that. Um, you know, there was something interesting I saw, you know, June 1st was the day where Trump had the, the conference call with the, uh, with the governors where he's berating them and these crazy exchanges. And that was the night he gave that speech and march marched across, yeah. you know, for the photo op in front of the church. Right. And, and, you know, so that was June 1st, 2020 on June 1st. 
where is it? On June 1st, um, on June 1st, 1927 was the day the New York Times reported that Fred Trump was arrested at a KKK rally. Yeah, so yeah. 93 years earlier, Trump's dad is getting arrested at a KKK rally. It's just yeah. like, Jesus Christ, now this guy's the president, you know? <laughs> um, you know, talk about an unnerving historical detail. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, it is hard to take, and, and it's funny because I do see I, you know, I see people that I know who are trying to understand what's going on and looking for information um, and, you know, trying to parse through it and like, you know, looking for solutions to, to the, you know, to what we're going through. And at the same time, I do feel like I have a lot of people that have been so sort of radicalized by Trump that it's, you know, like reason and logic and historical perspective are out the window, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little troubled by that too. So I, I find myself in some weird conversations sometimes, you know, because, you know, here we go again, it's 2020 and here's, you know, you look at who the Democrats are put up for a president and you can't help but be worried and, you know, and, and you're like, ah, oh, you know, all this, you know, this parsing of what we need to do to win, you know, playing it safe and playing not to lose, you know, in my lifetime has never gotten the Democrats anywhere. And here they go again, and there's so much on the line. Yeah. And, you know, to even ask those questions, I feel like people treat you like you're treasonous. So, so let me not take the bait of like comparisons between Nixon and Trump, because I think that will that could turn into its own thing. And I actually don't want to have that conversation, you know? And like, as, 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 a, as a point of clarification, like what I, what I meant to say is that like, I was putting the DC, you know, military dynamic aside from, you know, the problem of the various police departments across the country, you know? And like, I, I actually don't feel like I can say confidently one way or the other what's happening with Trump on the road to a junta. Like, I don't know at this point, like it seems like, like there's been so much pushback that seems unlikely right now, but like what I can talk about with like a little bit of authority is like what is going on with the police departments across the country, you know? And oh. so, and so it's like, I have been watching countless hours of protest footage from all over the States. And like, uh, I know this, I'm preaching the choir here, but the police are absolutely driving the violence, you know? And, and, and they do so without consequences. And so your question, you know, my question of like, I don't see meaningful, like what's the path to de-escalation now? I think it's better asked about the police departments than about Trump, you know? And totally, I think it's more, totally. it's more useful for people to have that conversation in their own communities because that's actually where they can make a difference. Well, that's why I love the question so much because I thought, well, there's two levels of this question. It's exactly, it's like, do you mean like, you know, literally in the moment? you know, can they de-escalate from this situation? A bigger picture can, you know, can the system reform itself? Can, you know, can police right. power be walked back to a more reasonable um, position before, you know, the country really starts to, you know, descend farther than it's descended, I guess. Yeah, and so, and so I, I'm gonna focus on, you know, the local police level because I feel like, like I know, I knew enough about that already. And there's like some really interesting conversations happening. Um, but like, yeah, I think your idea about short-term, long-term is another good way of thinking it because like, because the violence is being driven by the police, like if we're going to have short-term de-escalation, de the police will need to stand down, you know, like, like just dare to dream for a second about like police allowing, a, a, a tolerating an amount of disruption and God forbid, even property damage, you know, like Mardi Gras cops do in New Orleans every day. You know, like, 
you have to change your stance right now. This is like, this is like an uprising. And so you need to give people some room to flex a little bit in the streets. Like, I don't think it's useful to get into the whole parsing between protesting and rioting and looting. Like that's like, I think it's a, it's a, it's a distraction and it pulls totally. you away from, the, oh, from the story, the real story here, which is that this is about black lives matter. And it's about the police as an entrenched violent force in a lot of people's lives. Um, but like, this is what's different to me about like Ferguson is that like, we have cops beating people, like beating the people they normally beat and then also beating peaceful protesters, nurses, doctors, the press, you know, old men with canes, children. I mean, it's, it's just like, it's an insane appetite for violence. And so you do that as a response to an initial protest. And then guess what happens? You get more protesters the next night. That's what happened to DC. You know, June 1st, Blackhawks and tear gas over nothing. And then the next night you have like an even bigger protest. So like just even from like a counterinsurgency cynical perspective, like they're playing the wrong book. Like if you want to calm things down, you need to reduce police forces and you need, you need to put your most tolerant members on the front lines and you need to chill. You like at this point, you're responsible for chilling the situation out because you're responsible for the violence. I mean, who, who, who are you going to blame? The people who showed up to the party with, um, it, it, you know, with their signs or the people who showed up with like billy clubs and like pepper spray, you know? So I, I, totally. I also, and, and I don't think this behavior is new. I think the scale of it, that it's nationwide and it happened from such a quick spark. Um, right. It hasn't happened in our lifetime. You know, I guess you got to go back to the, to the late sixties, early seventies. Um, you know, it certainly happened in, in different places. And, you know, I experienced very personally in the 2004 Republican convention in New York, the, you right. know, the armed force that the NYPD was, and all of these things that people are going around, you know, that they're so shocked, like reporters are getting arrested and, you know, shot by rubber bullets and, and, you know, they're just locking down the streets and arresting everyone and these mass arrests and they're detaining, you know, preemptively detaining people and all these things like, oh, that went on. You know what I mean? And right. you know, ironically led by, you know, the, the one of the presumptive Democratic nominees for president, Mike Bloomberg, you know. Right. Um, right, right. And and uh, and, you know, so not, that part of it, none of it is new. Like, I mean, they've only continued to amp it up and it's become more nationwide, but it's that it's happening all at once. That so many people are out on the streets at one time all over the country. And then you're seeing sort of all of these police forces roll into the streets to deal with these problems. And they're all so militarized now, you know, that you're just right. seeing it all at once. It's not just a hot spot here and a hot spot there. So I think that you know, it's, you know, that show of force is being seen by people. And, you know, I, I hate to see it, but I think it's good. I think people did not have that sense of, you know, just, just where they stood with local law enforcement and their community for a lot of people. Now, you know, if you're black and you live in one community versus you're white and you live in another community, you certainly know the difference. But, you yeah. know, I don't think a lot of people do. And I also think that, you know, even taking race out of the equation, you know, cops are out of control. And I think there's a lot of white people out there that have had very unfortunate, you know, interactions with the police too. 
I think it's, you know, it's filtered out into a lot of communities where people never thought they'd be affected by it. Now, certainly where people are affected the most are, you know, poor black and brown communities in the United States. And, Absolutely. you know, that's, you know, uh, you know, that's, that's the biggest part of the problem. But, you know, these are, you know, these are systemic issues. And, you know, I think, I don't think police operated with this kind of impunity 20 or 30 years ago. I think there's been this slow creep of what the courts allowed and the power of police unions where, you know, Mm -hmm. cops have just totally become untouchable for whatever they do. I mean, your community might pay some restitution or settle a lawsuit and your tax dollars might go for something like that. But in terms of, you know, cops uh, paying a personal or professional price for the things they do when they're on the job, I mean, that's almost non-existent. And I think more and more cops know it, you know what I mean? And yeah. they police, you know, and they instill more fear. And then they're more afraid because they're out there knowing what they're doing and what their colleagues are doing on the street. And it does have this, you know, this effect on the community, you know, to everyone in the community and all these different police forces. Yeah, I think it's like, like you can, if you start pumping a massive amount of military grade gear into a police department, if you start dressing cops like soldiers, they're going to start thinking they're soldiers, you know? Um, so the, the militarization thing is something that I found, you know, very, very concerning because I just think it to like, think of like the, the blues brothers, you know, where, uh, first of all, the cops are the bad guys in the movie. Uh, they weren't a lot of those seventies and eighties movies, but it's like, look at, look at how they like, what, look at what they wore. They, they carried like revolvers and drove like Dodge's. You know, and then you flash forward to like today and they're, they've got like tactical gear and MRAPs and, and, uh, you know, and, and semi-automatic rifles and snipers and like, and, and, and just munitions. And it's like, if you treat, if you give somebody the gear of a warrior and then you train them to think like a warrior, they might start acting like warriors, you know? And this is something I shared. I'm not sure if you saw it, but like, are you, are you familiar with Dave Grossman? Um, he's the one who, so Dave Grossman, he teaches, he, he goes around like 200 days out of the year and he teaches this, his personal philosophy called killology. And yes, you know what I've heard of, I've heard that term before. I've heard that term before. He's an ex ranger who incidentally himself has never taken a life, but he creates these, uh, conference center classes where he, encourages police officers to overcome their natural instinct to take a life. And so it's basically like a, like a, like a raw, raw, re-raw session to get them to overcome the hesitation. And then he walks them through all the ways in which they're not actually going to be held accountable if they are, if they do shoot somebody. Well, that's what's so crazy. If you're, if you're a, you know, if you're a grunt on patrol in some village in Iraq or Afghanistan or some town, and, you know, there's a very strict rule. There's very strict rules of engagement. And if you break them, you will suffer consequences. Yes. Not true for police on the beat in America, which is just terrifying, you know. And, and you know, it's... Um, that, it's that was that irony I was speaking to before where we have yeah. the military calling for restraint and for policing of themselves. While we have police behaving like what they imagine soldiers are like. Oh but yeah, like, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a vet. I was in the 82nd Airborne Division. Sure, sure. You know, one of the yeah. great, 
um, you know, one of the great parts of the 80 seconds history is, you know, it, it jumped under Normandy at D-Day, you know, it, it jumped into France, on, you know, on, on D-Day or the night before D-Day and, you know, fought all the way to Berlin. And as a soldier in the 82nd Airborne Division, you are taught the history of that and you are taught the history of standing up to fascists. You know what I mean? I'm not saying it's yeah. like an everyday history course, but I think the average soldier is probably instilled with more of that than, than the average citizen and certainly the average cop, you know what I mean? Like, right. you know, and it's just, you know, totally, uh, you know, just this, you know, totally ironic. And I guess maybe sometimes I, you know, being a vet, I have a little more faith in, in the military than I do in, uh, in police, not that I want to see them patrolling the streets either, you know. Like it's 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 a problem when police refer to their their fellow neighbors and citizens as civilians. Like yeah. it implies a battlefield. It's not a battlefield. It's like our town, yeah. you know. And I think that like you said, you mentioned this earlier. I think it's worth like revisiting, which is that this is a reality that poor black and brown people have known in this country forever but it's something now that white middle-class people are starting to get just a tiny teensy taste of and in, in a, a, across the nation, you know? And so, and I do think that that is ultimately useful because people who were already sympathetic to this cause are actually at a, at a, at an intellectual level, at a cerebral level, are not getting to feel it in their guts a little bit, you know, what it's actually like to be afraid for your life. Um, and, and I think that might actually really motivate some change. And I, and I got to say, like, I loved that zoom session with the LAPD. I, I sent that to you, right? Like just the, uh, the public comment, the public comment. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you got like just hours of Angelinos just sounding off directly to Michael Moore, the chief of police. And you know, this guy, this is the guy who said that the protesters were somehow responsible from George yeah. Floyd's death. Okay. That statement was just so bananas. It's just Fucking genius. <laughs> you know, just unbelievable. And then you're like, are these people, are they that clueless or are they that cynical? You know, it's just, it's like, it's just very hard to understand. Um, but yeah. like in 2020 and, you know, with Mayor Garcetti and, you know, this is the guy who's doing this job. I'm like, you know, I mean, just fire his ass. Like, what the fuck? You know what I mean? Like, why the fuck is that guy talking like that? Yeah, well, that's you know? the thing is why, why, why wasn't he fired? And, and why, why, why is the head of the police union in New York City gleefully doxing the daughter of our mayor with her arrest record? And then, yeah, it's crazy. I, I've I said mean, that's, this like the, that. That is that's a position of power. That is telling somebody, to, you know, like go fuck yourself. I, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And this other thing where they're using the um, the the black mourning bands around their badge IDs. Like that—that yeah. that is like some Trump level trolling because that is basically saying it's so cynical, right? It's basically saying to you, I'm lying. And I know that you know that I'm lying and I'm just daring you to say something about it. And that is like next level bully energy. But totally. like, yeah, totally. Uh, it's, like, but there are people like the, the mayor, I'm the mayor of New York. I'm fully convinced is terrified of the police union because he is, they're, like the the weakness of his commentary and his Twitter posts have inspired like mock Twitter accounts where people are you know mock De Blasio's are saying well I had lunch today and we had red lentil soup pretty great um, walked yeah. over to, to walked over to, to, to downtown Brooklyn uh, you know um, uh, last hour ago and looked like everyone had cleared out because like the like, there's this running joke in New York that De Blasio's like always an hour late for everything yeah. and it's a convenient way not to see what's really going on right now <laughs> but but that but that Zoom session 
in LA was just like, I mean, it was amazing to me because you had, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to racially profile the people on the Zoom session, but they were white. Some of them were white. Oh yeah. And, and like, <laughs> and they had this like, let me talk to the manager energy. Yeah, I'm just they like, did. It's using so, it for good somehow, you know. Using it, and I saw, I, you know, I saw Gil Garcetti today. Yeah. Make a statement like, I want to take 150 million out of the police budget and reinvest it in other, you know, in other kind of community, other kind of, you know, other kind of uh, community services. Yes. Um, so, which is great. I don't know if that'll ever happen, and who knows? I don't know know what that really means, but it it sounds good. It sounds great. You know, it sounds good. It's you know that's the kind of action people, you know, are looking for. All these mayors they run on reforming the police department. You know, there's I've never seen a mayoral election where to get the votes of certain communities, we're like we got to reform the police department. We need a new police chief. We need to make this happen. We need the community to be more involved in the decisions. They yeah. all run on that. They all get elected. And something must magically happen or some secret meeting must take place on like day two where the police union is like, okay, Mr. Mayor, let us give you your agenda, you know? Yeah. And without fail, it's like, you know, it, you know, and I, you know, so that just tells me it's a, you know, it's a very ingrained problem. It must be very difficult to overcome. Um, yeah. And that there's a lot of cynical people in politics for sure. But, it, you know, it's unbelievable. It's, you know, and I, don't, I think it probably takes a lot of nerve to stand up to the NYPD, but man, like de Blasio, you're a lifelong New Yorker. Like, what are you, where are you going from here, man? You're gonna be living in New York City your whole life. Call somebody on the carpet, you know, like what, the city's gonna be, it's not gonna descend into madness. You know, I don't understand. And you know, hey, it's easy for me to chew my mouth off and say some stuff like that, but it's, you know, after years and years and election after election and seeing, you know, all these mayors and, 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 you know, county administrators just be so ineffective at reining in their police forces. It's just what is going on. Yeah. I, I think that like, like de Blasio sees himself as like, I mean, I think this is delusional, but like from his behavior, I think he's you know, like thought of himself as like a presidential contender someday, you know? And, and I think that like, that's a key problem towards meaningful change is that the people at the levers are always thinking about higher office, which I think is, I think is not likely because he's not, you know, he's sort of like loathed here in the city. I don't, and I, and he comes across as incredibly weak. Um, but yeah, I this think is his moment to lead. And he, well, really his moment to lead was shutting down the city before the pandemic spread. And he blew that, yeah. you know, and now he's blown this. So I, I you know, it's, uh, I don't know where he thinks he's going from here, but. You but know, I, 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 I think it's the, like that's the thinking behind it is that he thinks he needs this like he needs the power of this police union for his political future. I think that's what he is thinking about as the next term. How difficult do you think it is to reform the system? You know, a lot of talk. We need reform. You know, I, the most I just thought the most feckless thing I've heard today from politicians and business leaders is we need change. You know, we need change. Yeah. Um, like, no kidding, man. No kidding. But how are we going to do it? Who's going to do it? But I mean. How just the scope of the pro the scale of the problem? I mean, how what do you think the scale is? Like, how I, hard is it? I think it's incredibly hard, um, and and I think that like the, the barriers are very real. Like the Times just did a piece about this earlier, talking specifically about you know Milwaukee and also um, uh, you know which you can generalize to police departments across the country. But there are these massive barriers to reform for individual actors. It, like bad, the bad apples, it's really hard to uh, get rid of them, 
you know, because there's like, there's a, a review process. It's difficult to fire them. They sometimes can get fired and rehired. Um, but I think that like, um, the biggest hurdle is probably the police unions because they represent not just a power base, but like a culture. And it's something that like, I think about a lot is like when I was talking to Larry Krasner, he says, you can legislate all you want, but culture eats policy every time. Yeah. And so there's this ingrained culture and this power base that I think is like a big hurdle, but I've read people who think there's, there's a way to overcome this. I think, like, you know, I think ironically, it's like the four strongest unions in the United States are the football players, the professional basketball players, the professional baseball players, and the police union. Like those are the four strongest unions in the United yeah. States. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and I yeah. mean, like uh, just examples of this, you know, we talked about like the doxing and we talked about the bands, but like you have the head of the, um, of the police union in Minneapolis basically saying like, I've killed people and I sleep just fine. You know, like what, like no one asked you that question. Like, it's like you're going out of your way to assert that. And then, uh, and then again, I keep coming back to Krasner, but like yeah. when he got why elected. Tell, who, why don't you tell people who, oh, let me who, establish is, who Larry Krasner is. So Larry Krasner is the current district attorney of Philadelphia. Um, and he comes from criminal defense and from civil rights. Um, basically, if you were in anywhere from ACT UP to Black Lives Matter uh, to Occupy, if you were a protester, you got arrested, you called Larry Krasner and he represented you. So he was already known in the, like, the civil rights and activism community for doing that like, pro bono legal work. And, one, and then he's just been like, you know, mortified like a series of terrible DAs in Philly. Like, it's, it's not a well-known thing, but like, you know, DA... The, the previous DA in Philly is actually in prison now, like on corruption charges. And the DA before that DA was known as the country's deadliest DA. And then you, you're like, wait, what, in Philly? And it's like, yeah, but like Philly is really like surrounded by what they call pencil tucky. So like yeah. you get like a very like conservative strain of prosecutor and white police officer there. Um, and so uh, and it's, that's another thing too, is there's actually like two police unions in Philly that tend to fall along racial lines. But anyway, Phil, you know, um, Krasner like one day did the math and was like, nobody shows up for these, the DA's elected, nobody shows up for these elections. Um, I know a lot of people in, 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 you know, in the community, Philadelphia is overwhelmingly people of color and they are not turning out for this vote. I wonder if I could energize, you know, this base. And so he went on like a listening tour and he went and talked to deacons and activists and, you know, returned citizens and the people who are doing the real work, you know, people, you know, um, you know, sex worker activists, like he wouldn't talk to the people who are actually like trying to like hold the community together and he slowly earned their trust. And then like he won in a landslide election. And then like on day one, he's like, we're decriminalizing marijuana. I'm effectively going to decriminalize most sex work. You know, I'm going to like try to do my best to eliminate cash bail. And he just started doing these sort of like, it's like direct action, but from within the system. It's like, I'm not going to try to fix this with rules or regulations. I'm just going to keep people out of the prison pipeline as best I can. Um, and like, I don't, I want to be really careful about talking about Larry Krasner because he's, he's not like a white knight and he doesn't think of himself that way. He thinks of himself as an activist who's part of a movement and he's not a politician. He's not interested in higher office. We'll see if that holds true. But he's saying, I don't want to do the normal route that people do, which is they become DA, they run on a record of being tough on crime, and then they like 
step up to AG or governor, and then they have their eye on the presidency. Like, that's not who I am. I am part of a movement. And so, like, I can't say this for other progressive DAs across the country because I don't know their backstories as well. But, like, a defining feature of Krasner is that he actually meets with stakeholders in the community where he's a prosecutor. So he's working with the people that got him elected in the first place. Um, and despite all that, like he still comes up against massive resistance against um, the entrenched conservative police union and the judges who try to strike down like the uh, reform efforts that he makes. So, you know, progressive DAs are helpful, but like, it's just like one part of, of it's just like one tool in the, in the toolbox of like trying to get at the system. And I think that like, you had met, you had, you had asked me about um, some of the, and I guess like the point of parallel there is that like de Blasio is looking to higher office and that sort of limits what he can do. And when you stop caring about higher office, you, that gives you the opportunity to sort of just fight for what you believe in. You know, it's, it's local. Like, it's sad that you can't point to one community where it's like, this is where they're doing it right. You know what I mean? It's, I mean, maybe there's one out there, but you know, it's just hard to say that, you know, and you know, with, and that, that there isn't this shining example of like how to do it right. So they're all trying to reform, you know, you right. have sort of all these systemic American issues of poverty and racism and, and the legacy of the drug war, which is amazing. We've been talking, you know, for so long and, you know, we haven't even talked about the drug war yet, which is sort of like the precursor to all of this, to militarizing the police forces, you know, and to, or, you know, a or a feedback loop, at least. You know. Yes, yeah, yeah, you know, militarizing the police forces, um, you know, sort of creating the prison industrial complex, all of these things were to serve the, you know, the so-called drug war, war on drugs, um, you know. Um, and, and so, you know, so, you know, it's just incredible. But, you know, anyway, there's all these sort of national systemic problems that exist in all these different communities, but it's sort of up the, to the communities to, to solve the problem. And that's very difficult, especially because I do think, you know, I find, you know, most people are more interested in national politics than local politics. And they are looking at like, you know, how are they going to fix this in Washington? Like how is, mm. how are the people on Capitol Hill going to stop what happened to George Floyd? And I, you know, I did that. I just don't think is ever going to happen. Like, I don't think, you know, George Floyd was going to be dead, whether Hillary was the, you know, was the president or Trump was the president. You know, this has been brewing since Ferguson and, that happened with a black president and a black attorney general and black lives matter, you know, was founded during that. And, you know, that, you know, this is not something that Obama and, and Holder could just jump in and fix the problem. Like they were trying to, you know, do some stuff. And of course, Trump immediately stopped doing all that when he put those programs on ice when he became the president. But, you know, those problems, you know, those, they, what they were doing was, you know, not solving the problem. I mean, they were working some solutions, but they weren't solving the problem. Yeah, well, because the problem is systemic. And I think yeah. that, like, you know, all these things that we talk about, like, you know, um, transparency and police records and cash bail reform and progressive DAs, like, they're all well and good. And I, and I think that they will, in their own way, deliver measures of justice, maybe more of an individual level. Well, except for cash bail. I, I, I fundamentally am on board with cash bail because it's just like, it just keeps people out of jail, you know? Like, you mean you're on board with doing away with cash bail? Yeah, I'm on board with, with yeah, with getting rich. <laughs> no, I'm all for okay. it, man. <laughs> no, I was no. like, do you know something I don't know? <laughs> Where like, oh, it should just be, all bail yeah. should be the same at $5 or I wasn't sure. <laughs> no. But, 
but yeah, like I'm, I'm all for eliminating cash bail because it just keeps people out of the system. And like, it's just, it doesn't matter who you are. Like the more time you spend in jail, like the worse your outcomes are, you know? And, and, and it's, and it's like cash bail is a way to coerce charges out of poor people. It just greases the wheels of the system. You know, if you're rich, you don't have to worry about it. If you're poor, you can be pressured into pleading to, to like a lesser charge because they're just trying to process you through a system, you know, yeah, and make money off doing it. You know what I mean? Make if, money you're rich, off, yeah, you exactly. can, if you're rich, you could just shell out the dollars to deal with the problem. You know what I mean? And never face any real consequences. And if you're poor, you end up in the system, you know, where some private prison is making money from the state off of your, you know, your ass being in jail, you know? But to answer this sort of like that big picture question of like what might actually deescalate police violence, um, it, it, the, the most comprehensive like thinking I've seen so far comes from this guy named Alex Vitale. Um, he's a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College. Um, and he's the one who, who kind of got defund the police on the intellectual, you know, uh, landscape it's like he's the one who kind of i, I i'm not 100 percent sure of this but i think he's the one who came up with the idea or at least popularized it right. you know and so when you hear defund the police like when i first heard defund the police i balked at it and i actually don't think it's a good slogan because you're like well what does that mean and then like it sort of immediately brings to mind the the elimination of policing you know and and that just like i don't think that helps you with mass appeal, even among like these rad rapidly radicalizing moderates. You know, I, I think it's right. just like, but that's actually not what it means. And I think that's the problem of the messages. You have to actually do a little bit of homework to understand where they're coming from. And what they're actually saying is, and I think you touched on earlier with like the California plan, which is you defund, you, tar you targeted elimination of some functions of policing. So for example, and, New York City, there are 5,000 police personnel in, you know, in New York's working in the New York City schools, cops and schools, 5,000 of them. That's more than all of the counselors and social workers combined, right? That's crazy. So just, wow. just you follow the money and it tells you what the system, you know, prioritizes, right? And so they're like, cut the budget, get cops out of the schools and spend that money on things that the communities want. Work with communities and find out what they want, but it's going to be things like rec centers, public daycare, meal programs, the things we know that sort of like immediately alleviate poverty and help, right? So, you know, I'm essentially going to plagiarize uh, Vitaly for you because, Please. you know, I've just, I've just, you know, been reading his stuff and looking at his interviews and he, he has like a comprehensive, you know, theory behind this. And it's sort of like, you can't talk about police without talking about capitalism, you know? So he rejects like the... So now what, what I gotta turn. Wait, now I gotta turn my back on capitalism too. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know how much. I know what, you were such. You were such a stan. You know. I gotta like, get my tattoos removed now. Yeah. So, no, I'm sorry. Anyway, I apologize for interrupting. <laughs> um, so he sort of like he rejects these go the go to remedies that are sort of in the liberal, you know, noosphere right now, which is that like if only we could train the police to be nicer guys. So like de-escalation training, sometimes mindfulness meditation, these police community meetings where they talk about racism, the body cameras, early warning systems to weed out the bad cops. He just puts that all aside. And this is why, because he's like, five years ago, after you know the killings of Mike Brown and Garner, Tamir Rice, 
the Obama administration developed that task force and they came up with those, you know, anti-racist programs I just mentioned, right? So basically around bias training. And so the idea is like you compel these police to, to behave more civilly, you know? And Minneapolis was a model city. And then they proudly published a report in 2018 explaining their compliance with the Obama administration task force, right? They did all of that stuff. And then Chauvin murders George Floyd, just like cold blood, right? And so Vitaly says, like, you have to question those methods. Like, are those really working? He's like, instead of, oh, um, instead of like focusing how police work, you have to look at what they're doing. It's not the how, it's not their attitude, it's the actual work it's, it's, it's itself. And so his point is, it's like you don't make a narco friendlier, you end the war on drugs. And we got here because we've turned every social problem into a policing problem. Drugs, poverty, homelessness. So basically we have criminalized things instead of creating a social welfare for an economic opportunity for poor people. And then we send in the police who are essentially violence workers to go in and clean up the mess and you get predictable results. So he wants to selectively take money from police departments, um, cut their budgets and put that money into community programs that help with economic opportunity um, and it's essentially wealth, wealth and opportunity redistribution. So basically what he's saying is that, um, you know, he's, he's looked into the roots of, of police departments. Like where did the idea of the modern day police department come from? And it comes from um, uh, Sir Robert Peel. Robert is the, is the Bob and Bobbies. And this is, in, this is in England in the early 19th century. Right. And Sir, Sir Peel's job description was to transition London to take away law and order duties from the militias, which is how it used to be done, and give it to these newly formed police departments that looked more like civilians. And this was like, a, you know, praised as like a progressive alternative. But like his job description before he did that was to be the head of the English occupation in Ireland, the Irish Peace Preservation Force. And basically what he did is instead of using the military he used paramilitary forces that were embedded in the local communities to preemptively squash peasant uprisings because the British landlords were starving the people to death. So, so, so Peel comes back to London just as the city is flooded from people coming in from the countryside because of the enclosures. Basically, you know, England essentially privatized all this public land and gave it to wealthy landlords and kicked off all these country folk who now end up in the city looking for like jobs in the new industrial society. And so Peel's mandate was to use this newly formed police department to shape these people into a compliant working class. So he breaks their unions and he raids their beer halls. He goes after their power and after their culture. And that is the model of modern day policing. It's, it's, it's based, it's rooted in colonialism, uh, industrialization and slavery. And so what we have now, you flash forward to today, and we don't have active colonialism in America, not per se. We don't have like literal slavery. I mean, we have wage slavery. Um, and we don't really have industrialization. But what we do have are the byproducts of capitalism, which produces mass homelessness, mass drug problems, mass poverty, and then black markets for survival. And then the police are sent in to manage what is not even a working class anymore, but a surplus, po surplus population that capitalism has no use for. And so that's the thinking behind all this. It's like, you have to look at the problem itself that the police are being brought in to do. 
why are violence workers doing social work? Because yeah. we have social problems. I heard a statistic, I heard a great interview with DeRay McKesson from Black Lives Matters, from the sure. Black Lives Matters movement the other day. And it was this super succinct, like 25 minute, basically presentation. It wasn't even an interview. The person interviewing him just sort of sat back and let him talk. And he had a statistic, he's like, only 5% of police calls are for felony level crimes, you know, 5%. But every cop is armed to go out and confront a felon, you know what I mean? And right. we are, we have never been safer and more crime free in this country than we are right now. And, you know, and we have this, basically this army of police officers who are there for a mission that doesn't exist. You know what I mean? It's like, why do you need to send someone with a gun and an AR-15 in their trunk to a traffic accident? Vitaly makes a similar point, which is that your average police officer makes one felony arrest a year. If they make two a year, like that's a huge deal. The, the vast majority of their work is, is dealing with the mess that capitalism has created. You know, it's, it's calls for, vagrancy it's 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 petty crime it's um it's you know it's loitering it's like you know drunken and decent it's like it's it's like basically we like we closed down like our mental institutions under reagan in the 80s and we're just like we're not doing that anymore now now those those mental institutions those federal ones were terrible <laughs> they were snake pits but at least it was like acknowledging that they needed a place to live and yeah, so we've essentially no, no, turned absolutely. mental illness into homelessness and then we sent cops who are trained in restraint um, and and weapons to go deal with people who are like you know at the having the worst moment of their life you know yeah no absolutely and it's of just of course like, that you is get not, terrible results yeah of course you get terrible results you know it's it you know and 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 you know the other thing was just understanding how little information is known about what police departments do, you know, and what they report to the general public. And it was shocking coming out of Ferguson. There's not even a database of police shootings, you know, anywhere in the country. The FBI does not track that data. You know, it was just shocking to learn that, you know, and it was, you know, it was, it was, it was, ama it was amazing to see these young Black Lives Matters activists in the, in the streets um, and, and protesting and standing up, you know, hitting this nerve with white America for daring to say that Black Lives Matter you know, in this moment. Yeah. But even I, I have to confess, being a little frustrated, these young people got this national platform. And, you know, I was just sitting there annoyed that they didn't have these policy solutions. And I look back and I'm like, man, how dumb was I? Um, because these, pe these young people were just trying to start to confront the problem. And we all knew there was a problem. But the ability to come up with policy solutions, the ability to give information and evidence and data to politicians who were trying to change the system. And, you know, and none of that data existed. Um, and, you know, you know, like what, what could they propose other than the cops are fucked up and they're killing people and it needs to stop, you know, what more do you need to know? But then, you know, when you try and solve the problem, you know, you need a little more information than that usually. And, you know, to see that these young activists, you know, who started at Ferguson have now sort of become this army of compiling data from, you know, from police departments all over the country, sometimes going to court to get the data because the police yeah. departments won't turn it over. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's just accepted that, like, police departments have internal affairs, and that's just how things are handled. It's like, it's, you, I mean, you laugh at the idea of self-regulation in the other context, but it's just sort of like, oh, right, internal affairs. 
And then when they're portrayed in movies and TV, it's always like, oh, those internal affair guys, you know, like they're, they're the dicks, you know? And it's like, no, they're the guys who are there to cover your ass, you know? Yeah, yeah, they are. It's sort of like a professional ass-covering uh, organization. Right. <laughs> it's like they have so many resources in place, like, and, and also in the police unions, they have, like, attorneys on call, like, when, you know, when their shootings happen, it's like they have a guy that they go to who, like, represents those cases, so he knows that case law, like, they have a process in place to sort of like sanitize these things. And I think like what I like about Vitaly's like overarching theory of all this is that it's like, it's violence work and we simply need to reduce the amount of it. And we also need to reduce the amount of interaction that they have with the public. And we need to take things that are criminalized and decriminalize them. We need to house the homeless. We need to end the war on drugs and we need to treat people with mental illness. And then if you want to see like rates of like, police violence drop off, that's how you get there. You know, we'll see how it goes. You know, I mean, we, well, we, like, I, I think, think I know. texted you, I think I texted you the other day in our, in our epic text thread. I'm like, you know, is, is the Blasio the boss? Can he fire the police commissioner? Like, technically speaking, like, you know, is he the boss of the cops in New York? I, I couldn't remember. I'm like, or is it some city council panel and he can't, you know, because some municipalities no, are structured differently. He, he can, he can fire. And, but it's sort of like, it's the, it's, it's, it, I, I don't think he will because I think he's afraid of them because of their the political, you know, power they represent. I mean, just look at how they treat him with utter contempt. Openly. Totally. To, well, I just, but, I but sort like, of... and, and it's like, it, and I think this is like a good dovetail for Milwaukee, which is that like the current, it's the current chief of police in Milwaukee, like successfully sued that police department. Um, well, same thing in Minneapolis, right? I mean, you know. I'm you, sorry. I, I meant to say Minneapolis. Right. Oh, okay. Right, right. I got you. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. We, I'm, such, I'm such a coastal elite. No, I know. It's true, man. It's, aren't we all? Aren't we all? Um, but, um, but the thing I meant about just, yeah, not really specifically speaking to de Blasio, it's like it'd be good for people to be going to the ballot box knowing that, you know, this is the power that my mayor has. Now, the problem is, is getting someone to run for mayor who's like, I have this power and I'm going to talk about using it, you know, and it's, you know, right. that's hard, you know, that's, that's hard. It's a hard thing to do. And, you know, the more politicians you meet and get to know and work with on their campaigns, you know, you're amazed that, you know, sort of any change happens, you know what I mean? They're, I, I, they're I out there to people please and, you know, get elected and try and do some good and, you know. And, um, I, and I think up until now, it's like, you like, maybe this is changing right now, but like, culturally the message that people get from <laughs> Hollywood hacks is that is that they see these TV shows like you know going back for ages you know the CSI franchises and you know uh, uh, NYPD like you know like uh, well sorry not that like the law and order franchise sort of like dominated you know that genre which is like they show cops doing what like doing felony casework right like major crime it's good police and work you know good, every good time. clean police work and like having these ethical arguments with the da's about like the line and where to step across it you know like that's the message people have gotten and then like you know this is where like the the sort of like the capitalist rubber meets the road is because when you start to like question the existence of police people start to think about their property because that's where their minds go Oh yeah, so like, absolutely. Yeah. And people like, I mean, just sort of reflex, reflexively love them. And it's like, and I, and I'm not here to promote like hatred. It's just, I think we have to have like a more realistic understanding of the work they actually do, the power they represent and how entrenched it is. And that like, 
a huge portion of this country lives in apartheid and it's managed by our police departments. And until we can have that like conversation, like I don't think a lot is going to change. Like you have to shift like the cultural perception of it too. It's like, God bless Brooklyn nine, nine or whatever. But like, could they have said it in like a school cafeteria instead? You know, did it, yeah. have, to a, did it have to be a police department? You know, you know um, plus like we can't, we can't discount like the fact that like, People, there's a lot of people out of work. Like we don't even know if schools are going to be happening in the fall. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure because of this on universities to open. But right now that looks very uncertain. So it looks like no jobs, no schools. And then like in some cases, you know, people who've been pent up in their apartments for a month or longer, you know, and, and then like, and just witnessing the failure of like government at every level to like manage the pandemic. Like I think, yeah, that's part of the energy that's going. I mean, I don't want to take Definitely. anything away from Black Lives Matter because, like, that is fundamentally what this is about. But like, I, I, I do feel like it would be different if, like, we had a functioning economy and we had schools in session right now. Like, well, that would- and and people, as we've you know, as we've talked about or texted about quite a bit, it's like people are at home thinking about their lives, thinking about their societies, and you know, yeah. it's like since I don't have to go to work and I don't have to go to school, like why should we have to watch black people get murdered in the street over and over again? You right. know, like fuck you, like I might as well go out and do something about that. You know, you keep telling me to look for a bigger purpose in my life. Well, here it is. You know, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, there's certainly something to this that's. You know that the 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 spark was the was the George Floyd murder, but the kerosene of you know going back to Black Lives Matter and the pandemic and unemployment and you know students out of school and people just say and Trump, you know what I mean? God, right. man, you know to go out and scream at that guy. How how could you? You know I'm kind of a little. I feel bad that I'm you know I'm too old and I'm too much of a father to go do it you know <laughs> now but it's just uh, maybe when my kids are a little older and they can protect me uh, in the street but you know it's like God I, you know you it's just you feel you know I've been to a lot of protests I've made a lot of signs I've shouted I've gotten arrested it 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 feels like you're being a very productive part of society you know not behaving like a you know, a violent asshole in the streets, but, you know, standing up for your, for your, you know, for your rights, for the constitution, for your fellow citizens. It's like, yeah. you know, it's a great thing to do if only more people did it, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I agree. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling, but I, you know, I think that those are certainly, you know, contributing factors to sort of the size and, and scope of all of this too. I mean, there's this fascinating profile of Patrick Skinner. Uh, he's an ex-CIA case officer during, you know, the height of the war on terror turned beat cop in Savannah back in his hometown. And he's an exceptional human being and he's, a, he's like an interesting officer. I mean, the profile is definitely a soft profile, but like he despises the siege mentality that he sees in police departments because his thinking is like, siege mentality didn't work in Fallujah. Why do you think it's gonna work here? You know, like we, and so when he goes on patrol, he spends a lot of time just sort of like taking care of people. You know, like getting a cup of coffee for like a cold homeless woman, like, you know, spending time with her at like McDonald's, making sure yeah. she has a, a meal, you know, just like. Yeah, no one, no one understands hearts and minds better than a soldier or a cop. You know what I mean? They get it. Yeah. You know, you know, the ones with half a brain can get it. and Most of them have half a brain, you know. But so this has been awesome, Clark. Yeah. Any, uh, any, any, any final thoughts, any clothing thoughts? 
Um, <laughs> Not, you know, to put you on the spot. <laughs> uh, I, no, I, I, I get, it's like the one thing we didn't really talk about was like drugs, you know, like um, decriminalizing hard drugs, like heroin. Two. We'll come and, back and we'll math. talk about decriminalizing drugs. I love, one of my favorite, one of my favorite subjects. Yeah, I'd love to talk to you about um, um, uh, Carl Hart, uh, a neuroscientist, a professor here in New York City. He's a fascinating guy, and maybe that's a good setup for, uh, for, for, the, for the next time we talk. Uh, I, thanks for getting in touch, man. This has been a delight. I, I dig it. I dig it. This is the Friends You Wish You Had podcast. Hopefully, we're a couple friends you wish you had. Um, and uh, thank you very much for listening. Talk to you later.